All right, Mike, week five, heading to Woodbury. You know, one of my favorite things about this road trip is, is seeing all the different worship services. I know, each campus with its own unique flavor. Hey, one of the things we haven't done is talk to one of the bands. Oh, let's do that at Woodbury. Let's go. Come on! There he is. Jason Anderson, campus pastor. Gentlemen, welcome to Woodbury. Great to see you. Yeah. Good to see you guys. So at Eagle Brook, we invest a lot of time and energy in the worship. But why is that? I would say when people walk through the doors of all of our auditoriums, it is a break from the rest of the world and it's a chance for them to come together with hundreds, if not thousands of other believers and sing corporately together to our God. Well, hey, before you guys start doing run-throughs and rehearsals, do you mind if we talk to some of the band? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think they just walked up on the platform, right. so let's head down front. Let's, let's do, do it. it. So, Steve Duty, you've been a music pastor at Eagle Brook for... 11 years. 11 years. 11 years. No way. What kind of preparation goes into a weekend? Well, there are a lot of things that go into it, but what we're trying to do is create an experience where people can encounter God. Uh, first of all, I have to pick the songs that we're going to do. And then we have to rehearse them. We come here on Thursday night and do a band rehearsal. And then we meet on Saturday at 1.15. And it's the first time that we bring the production element into the weekend. Sure. Lighting, full audio, cameras, and all that kind of stuff. So it takes a little bit of work to get all those things to you know, come together. This is Marcia. She's amazing. What do you like about singing at Eagle Brook? I think this is where the gift that God has put in me gets utilized the most. I love just seeing new people come and give their life to Christ and how they relate to a song. To me, worship is a way of life. You give God what you have and He does the rest. Skin it, dun dun dun. Jesus, yes. Jesus, yes. I love you, love you, love you, Lord. I love you, love you, love you, Lord. <laughs> Where did you learn to play the guitar? You know, I didn't start until I was 17 and a half. Really? You're not one the of these child prodigies? No, no. I, it was the first instrument I'd ever picked up, but yeah. I just fell in love with the guitar, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And when I became a Christ follower, I started playing music for God, you know? What's your favorite style of music to play? Right now, blues. I was so sad. Now I'll be glad. Yeah, there you go. We should not collaborate together. Probably not. Why is worship so important to our culture here at Eaglebrook? It's because the, the musical part of the service helps prepare people's hearts for the message. And I meet people every weekend who tell me how inspiring the music is and how much it helps them connect on a heart level, a deep level with God. So it's a powerful experience. That was a great worship set at the four o'clock. Yeah. They're getting ready for the six, so we better get out of here. That's right. Next time we're gonna be at Coon Rapids, but in the meantime, we're gonna hear our next message in the Unstoppable series. <laughs> well, welcome everybody to all of our campuses today, meeting throughout the Twin Cities. Glad you made it to church, way to go. I also wanna welcome those of you watching online. More and more of you are watching across our country and world. Always glad and you can join us as well. We are in a series called Unstoppable from the Book of Acts, and we called it that. Because the early church really was unstoppable as it was spreading across Judea, Rome, and Asia. Nothing could stop people like Peter, John, and Paul uh, from talking about Jesus, even though they were mistreated for doing that, Peter said in Acts 4.20. But we can't help ourselves. We just can't help speaking about 
what we have seen and heard. He said, arrest us, beat us, throw stones at us if you need to, but we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So today we come to one of the most famous chapters in all of Acts, chapter 17, and Paul finds himself in the city of Athens, Greece. I have a little map here for you. Athens and Italy's down below, and Asia, modern-day Turkey is to the right there, and then around the Holy Land, around the Mediterranean Sea. But Paul finds himself in Athens. He's, he's teaching about who Jesus is, and, and he gets caught into a debate uh, with some people about the topic of religion. And he starts out here in Acts 17. He said, men of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. Now, that might seem like a compliment, but it's really not. I see that you are very religious, he says, for I walked around and observed your object, objects of worship. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown to you, I am going to proclaim. So these people were religious, but somehow they have missed knowing God. It's, it's very possible to be a religious person, to go kind of through the motions of religion, and not know God and completely miss God. That's why I've titled this message, Losing My Religion. Losing My Religion, because you can be religious and completely miss out on God. My dad was a Baptist pastor, so I grew up in a very religious home, and my parents did a great job of connecting religion to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But when I grew up, people all around me had strong opinions about each other's religions or denominations. The Baptists, for example, thought the Presbyterians... We're just country club Christians who watered down the Bible and just went to church to socialize and drink coffee. The Presbyterians, however, thought the Baptists were holy rollers and just needed to lighten up a little bit. The Catholics thought the Catholic Church was the only true church and that Notre Dame was God's football team. I mean, come on. <laughs> the Episcopalians were Catholic wannabes and thought you could miss a mass or two and still be okay and get to heaven. The Lutherans were somewhere between the Baptists and Catholics, but each viewed each other with skepticism. Nobody knew what to do with the Methodists. And the Assembly of God people were speaking in tongues and dancing in the aisles and thought the rest of us weren't spirit-filled. We thought they were just a little bit off the bubble and way too emotional. But I grew up thinking the differences between Baptists and Catholics especially were too big to resolve. For example, they went to Mass. We went to church. You know, they, they had a pope. We had Billy Graham. They confessed through a priest. We didn't confess much of anything. And there, were the, there was these differences. And my parents' greatest fear was that one of us five little Baptist kids in our family would marry a Catholic someday. So when I started dating Laurie Thompson, my dad said, but Bob, she's Catholic. I said, but Dad, she's so beautiful. He said, no, she's Catholic. I said, don't worry, it's not going to last. We're just having fun. Six years later, we got married. And it made both of our mothers physically sick. My mother, because Laurie was Catholic, and her mother, because she didn't like me. I don't know why, but didn't like me at all. Today, we have this great relationship. Both families get along just fine. But religion, I'm telling you, can do weird things to people. In fact, three years ago, one of our nieces on Laurie's side, very, very Catholic, got married, and the ceremony ended with communion like all Catholic weddings do. But as a non-Catholic, I'm not supposed to take communion in the Catholic Church because I'm not Catholic. But when the priest invited people to go up to receive communion, I leaned over to Laurie and said, I'm going up. I'm going in. She said, you can't do that. I said, why not? She said, because you're not Catholic, and it's against the rules. And what about my mother sitting two rows behind us? I said, look, the priest won't know who I am, and communion's between me and God, not your mom. 
So I went, my wife, I had to rip my arm away from my wife who was trying to hold me in the pew. And I went, and I'm telling you, it might be the only time in history when a Catholic priest served communion to a Baptist pastor. Because religion can do strange stuff to people. Now, all right, you can clap for that if you want, but I'll tell you what. I know that messes with some of you, that I did that. And I, and I didn't do it to mess with anybody. I, I'm not, I didn't do it to disturb anyone or disrespect anything. But my thinking is this. I'm not Catholic, Baptist, I'm a Christian. And if someone's going to serve communion, I'm going to receive it. Wow. That's amazing. So Paul looks around. Hey, that was, that was cool. Uh, Paul looks around. He said to the Athenians, he says, look, I look around and I see that you are very religious. But it wasn't a compliment. Because the next thing he does is he lovingly accuses them of not knowing God. You can be religious and not know God. So he launches into this brilliant speech about what it means to know God. And we pick it up now in verse 16. Look what it says here in verse 16. While Paul was in Athens, he was greatly disturbed to see that the city was full of idols. They were religious. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Greeks as well as in the marketplace with those who were there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now, Athens was the center of philosophy and mythology in that day where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle became famous. A lot of us studied those guys in, in college. But even today, you can see the remnants of Greek mythology from that day back 2,000 years ago. This is a photo of the Parthenon, for example, where the goddess of Athena uh, supposedly lived, goddess of Athena. She was the goddess who watched over the city of Athens. This is the temple of Zeus. Zeus was the person uh, or the god they made up who, who they thought was the ruler over the earth, land, and sea. He controlled the weather, so Zeus was kind of a big deal. So Paul walks into this city of Athens of false gods, and he starts talking about Jesus. Look what he says. Paul is preaching about the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And this intrigued the philosophers. They thought, man, this is, this is a, a new idea. They brought Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. I have a photograph of the actual ruins of the Areopagus. This was the governing center of Athens, Greece. And Paul gets invited into this important decision-making arena, and he starts speaking, and there's three parts to his speech, and I'm telling you, it's absolutely brilliant how he lays out the pathway to knowing God, not just for those Athenians way back then, but friends, for all of us here today. Three parts to Paul's speech. Look how he begins in verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples, hint, hint, like Athena or Zeus, doesn't live in temples built by hands. What Paul is doing here, he's starting out, the God who made the world, he's talking about creation. He's saying this is the first step, this is the first reality in getting to know who God is. And he challenges their belief in Athena and Zeus and all their false gods. He says, look, there's only one God. He made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands. In other words, Athenians, look around. He says, look at our world. If, if something has been created, then there must be a creator. But it's not Athena. 
It's not Zeus or something you've propped up in a temple built by hands. Look at the next verse. God himself gives life and breath to everything and everyone. From one man he created all the nations of the earth. What Paul's doing here is saying the reason there's a creation is because there's a creator. The reason there's life is because there is a life giver. He himself gives life and breath to everyone and everything. It's God. And then he goes on to say, God did this. He created everything that exists, our world included. God did this so that men and women would seek him. God created this amazing world and put us in it that men would seek him and women, that they'd reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Did you know that, by the way, that God is not far from you? Some of you are sitting there saying, but Bob, you, 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 don't, you have no idea the things I say. I swear way too much. God can't be near me. Things I watch on TV, the movies I watch, I don't even want God to be near me. But the reality is, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at all times, no matter where you are. And God longs to know you. God longs for every one of us to seek him and reach out to him and relate to him. He's just a prayer away. God is not far from any of us, Paul says. When it comes to knowing God, the starting point for Paul is creation. I just want to raise a question. What in creation grabs your heart? What in creation draws you toward God? Is it the first tulips? You know, that push their way up through this solid ground that's been frozen all winter long, and somehow there they come again every spring, push their way up through the dirt? Is it the lake trout that cruise the deeps of Lake Superior? I had to show you this picture. This is my second cousin. His name is Grant. This is the Minnesota state record. He caught it two summers ago on Lake Superior. And that draws me toward the creator. That's why I fish and hunt. Is it the loggerhead turtle that travels thousands and thousands of miles across vast oceans and gets in the current, but somehow comes back to the exact same little beach where it was born year after year? I can't find my car in the parking lot, and yet the loggerhead turtle finds its way back to the exact little tiny beach from which it was born. Is it the taste of a flat white espresso in the morning that makes you come alive and you say, there is a God? <laughs> or coconut joy ice cream at Nelson's in Stillwater. I was, I was in a gelato shop recently and the gal had me taste eight different flavors. Amazing. You think about this. We didn't need taste to exist, to survive. God could have made everything taste bland. We didn't need it. But God gave us each 10,000 taste buds that can differentiate millions of flavor combinations just for the joy, <laughs> just to have fun. Are you a wild flower person? Is that what makes your heart come alive? Are you a bird person? Realizing God's incredible creation. Are you a fish person? Are you an ocean person? Is that what makes your heart come alive toward him? Are you a forest person? Maybe it's eyesight. 
How many of you know, and I'll bet not many of you do, this, do know this, how many of you know the retina makes 10 billion calculations every second so that you can see? It makes 10 billion calculations every second, your eye, so you can see. The Bible says eyes that see and ears that heard hear. The Lord made them both. Miracles. God makes our earth spin on its axis at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. Just the right speed so we don't burn up or freeze to death or fling off into space off the surface. We travel through space, our world, our globe, travels through space 1.6 million miles every day. Speeding through space. But I've never once thanked God for making sure that we would spin and travel at just the right speeds for life to exist. Paul says, God did all this so that we would seek him and reach out to him and find him. That we would look at the awesomeness of creation and say, of course, of course, There's a creator. Now, that's where Paul starts, but that leads to a question. If everyone is surrounded by this amazing creation, why doesn't everyone acknowledge and worship the creator? And the answer is this. It's because of corruption. And this is the second part of Paul's argument in getting to know God. There's this creation, but then there's this corruption. And Paul says, since we are are God's offspring, in other words, we didn't make ourselves. God made us. Since we are God's offspring, we should not think of God as an idol, something that we make, designed by craftsmen from gold, silver, stone. God overlooked people's former ignorance about this. But now he commands everyone everywhere to turn away from idols and turn toward him. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says it this way, from the time the world was created, people have seen the earth, sky, and all that God made. They can clearly see his eternal power. It's obvious. We can clearly see his divine nature. So we have no excuse for not knowing him, but instead people through the ages have worshipped things, idols, careers, different Objects, cars, birds, animals, sun, moon, and stars, things that God created instead of worshiping the creator creator himself. Why do we do this? Paul says it's corruption. Our tendency is toward corruption, toward replacing God with a substitute that fits whatever we want our God to be. It's, it's why the first commandment says, have no other gods before me, because our tendency is to put other things before God, and it's idolatry. And if we're honest, we all struggle with this. I do, with making our own gods. What is idolatry? Idolatry is, is anything that takes a higher place in my life than God himself. It's anything I'm putting in my life that has a higher priority. It could be money. Again, I struggle in this area sometimes. It could be travel, we're just addicted to travel, and that's the thing that we most have in our life as a priority. It could be sports, it could be a team, it could be entertainment, fitness, for some of us maybe, that's number one. It could be personal beauty. Anything that takes the place of God is number one in my life. Now, nothing wrong with any of those things. I enjoy most of those things, except beauty maybe, (laughs) 
it's not that bad, but it used to be better. But if if they take priority over my worship and obedience to God, the Bible says that's idolatry and ultimately is destructive to my soul. It could even be a person that I'm putting in front of God in his place. In his book, Not a Fan, Kyle Eidelman writes about a woman named Kara who had been through a dozen guys. She dressed to please them. She arranged her schedule around them. She even slept with them, which only made her feel used and empty. She was looking to men to give her what only God can ultimately give her, which is validation and security and a sense of identity and wellness. And it left her empty because that's what idolatry does. Author Pete Wilson says it this way. He says, don't expect anything else in this world. Don't expect anything else to give you what only God can give. Only God can give you the security that you need the identity that we all crave, the purpose for living life, the peace and joy that comes from him. I mean, wouldn't it be freeing to to get to a place in life where we can say, God, I'm going to trust you to satisfy me, to fill me. I'm going to trust you. to I'm going to find my identity in you and my purpose and my joy. I'm going to stop exhausting myself striving for whatever or whoever I think it's going to do it for me finally, I'm going to trust that if I put you first, you indeed will satisfy me and fill me with whatever good you have for me. Paul told the Athenians, God commands people everywhere to turn away from idolatry and turn toward him. Question, is there anything in your life today that's taking the place of God? Anything that's more important to you, that occupies more of your thinking, more of your energy, more of your heart than your worship of God. For some people, it might be entertainment choices that take priority over their worship or devotion to Jesus. They want Jesus to be number one, but not if they have to give up certain movie habits or internet sites or even season tickets, maybe. For some people, it might be food. They're foodies, you know, where people turn to food rather than Jesus for their main source of satisfaction. It's all they think about. For some, it might be their kids that's number one over everything, even their marriage. Their devotion to Jesus and obedience to him is always second or third to their kids who run the show. These, uh, I brought something from my home today to show you. these are, these are medal awards. These are ribbons. Um, these represent 13 years of training, thousands of dollars, and endless hours of sitting on hard bleachers in schools watching gymnastics meets, which are fun for a little while. Uh, these used to hang in my daughter's Bedroom. Um, Next to hundreds of plaques and newspaper articles. At one point, she worked out four hours a day, six days a week. Four hours a day after school. She traveled to places like Chicago, Las Vegas, Tulsa, Des Moines, Des Moines. But during her junior year in high school, right before she went on a recruiting visit to Ohio State, she blew out her knee. 
on a double back dismount off the bars. Two surgeries later, she knew that her gymnastics career was, was ending. So the other day, I went searching for, for Meg's awards, and I found them downstairs in the furnace room <laughs> in a plastic bin covered with dust and mice droppings. We have mice. <laughs> and I looked at that, and I thought, all of those hours, all of the practice and travel and meets and tears and sacrifice comes down to this, a plastic bin in the furnace room. Now, to her credit, Megan never put gymnastics before her love for Jesus. In fact, the minute they put a medal around her neck, she would always take it off right, right away because she didn't like the attraction. And gymnastics was really good to her. She made great friends, many of whom now attend her church. Her two favorite coaches, Bart and Lori, attend our Woodbury campus today, which is fantastic. Meg even ended up coaching at White Bear and Centennial. But she would tell you that sports and medals and plaques in a bin make a lousy God. She would tell you it's fleeting, it's ultimately empty, that there's way more to life than standing on a podium somewhere in St. Cloud or Fargo and seeing your name in the paper the next day. Friends, I love sports, every part of it. This is my favorite month of the year. I absolutely love March Madness. I watch games every single day. But if your life or mine revolves around the final four, if our life revolves around the Wilds push to the playoff, which, by the way, they beat the St. Louis Blues yesterday, fantastic game. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> if your life revolves around Tory Hunters, return to the twins, our hope, I just need to remind you, it all ends up in a plastic bin. There's more to life than that. If any of it pulls me away from God, if any of it causes me to miss church on a regular basis, if it interferes with my devotion to prayer and Bible reading, if it prevents me from giving part of my income back to God who gave me life, created all that exists, then that's trouble. That's idolatry. That's putting other things before God. Paul said, look, in order to know God, start with creation. He's all around you. He's not far. Then deal with the corruption in your life. Whatever you're putting before God, deal with that because God wants to break through. Don't let anything take God's place. But the, fi the final thing that Paul says, he says, look, you got to follow and believe. And sometimes you have to follow for a while in order to believe. But there must come a point in every one of our lives where we, maybe we don't have all the answers. We don't have all of our questions answered. But there has to come a point where I am going to choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm going to trust him. And so Paul says this, God overlooked people's former ignorance about these things, but now he commands people everywhere to repent of their idolatry, for he has set a day of judgment by the man, Jesus. By the man he's appointed, and he proved to everyone who this man is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak of the resurrection, some of them laughed. Others said, we want to hear more. But some of them followed 
and they believed. So he starts with creation. He says when you look at creation, you have to conclude that there must be a creator. Theologians call this general revelation, that God's general revelation is to all mankind. But our tendency is toward corruption, toward replacing God with whatever we want our God to be. And that's idolatry. And God says you need to clean that up. So God sent his son Jesus, who proved he was God by rising from the dead. This is called specific revelation. The Bible says God became flesh and lived a while among us so that we could actually see God. Very specific revelation. We could hear God and touch him. God didn't just create us and leave us spinning out in space. He came to the very planet he created so that we could know God personally through Jesus Christ. And when Paul explained this to the Athenians, it says some of them laughed. (laughs) Some wanted to hear more. But some followed and believed. And when that happens, you begin to know God. When God begins to reveal himself in ways that are personal to you and powerful and life-changing, and it's no longer about a religion, but it's about a relationship that comes the moment you believe. By the way, what are some signs? How do you know that you've begun to know God personally? Well, your spirit begins to become alive toward him, and you want to know more of God. That's why you're all here today in church, and again, I just applaud you for doing that. Your spirit has become alive. I think one of the things that is a good sign is that you begin to worry less and trust more. You worry less about this life because you know there's an eternity. You know God has you in his hands. You begin to worry less. I can always tell when my relationship with God is is at a good place because I cast all my anxiety on him because he cares for me. And I worry less, I'm trusting more. A couple weeks ago, I got an email from a 17-year-old girl who I think sums it up beautifully, and I want to close with this email. She writes, Bob, I was raised in a religious home. I went to church every Sunday morning with the whole extended family filling the front row, and I absolutely hated it. I had formed an attitude against God. She says, but in eighth grade, I was invited to go to a camp with my friend. I didn't know it was a Christian camp. Every morning started with worship, prayer, Bible reading, free time, and then it ended with worship around a campfire every single night. For the first two days, I just shut it all out and thought it was so silly. But then I realized that every person at that camp had this light that shone through them. When something went wrong, they showed love, they smiled, they prayed with hope. It was different than anything I'd ever seen or experienced. So I decided on the third night at campfire, I would try to find out and listen to what everybody else had that I didn't. They sang a song, and part of the song went, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And when they sang it, I was overcome with emotion, and I began crying. And my counselor asked me what was wrong. I could only mutter two words. I believe. I never understood faith. I, I, I never understood why it was so important to people. It seemed so foolish to believe in something people couldn't see, but that night I began to see it very clearly. The words, not to us, but to your name be the glory, made me realize what the empty peace in my life was. I was so focused on living for myself that I never took time to stop and thank the Lord for his incredible creation that was all around me. Since that day in eighth grade, I've been a devoted follower of Christ. I'm now a senior in high school And every day I'm surrounded by negativity, destruction, and heartbreak. One of my friends even committed suicide this past November. 
And I've never, and I have felt every realm of emotion except one. I never felt anger. My friends and family were angry that my friend did this to herself. They were angry others didn't step in. They were angry that God let her go so soon. But I never felt this anger. I felt peace that she was somehow in God's hands. For a while, I even felt guilty about this until I realized the reason why I had peace. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who has given me peace and strength that I was missing for so long. Today, many of my friends and family members have joined me at church. They've become followers of Jesus. They've begun the journey away from anger and toward peace as well. And I just wanted to write to you and thank you for teaching God's word and for giving me a place, faith-filled place, to call home. I'm forever grateful. See, the pathway to knowing God is when you realize that because there's a creation, there's got to be a creator. It's when you realize that we tend to put other things in front of God, and that's idolatry, and we need to deal with that corruption. But it's when you finally come to that beautiful moment of belief in Jesus where you begin to worry less and trust more because you're in his hands. And you trust more in the one who lived and died and rose again and who does not want our religion. But he wants a relationship with every single one of us. A relationship that heals our hurts and gives us hope and gives us a reason to live. And at all of our campuses today, we're going to have people gathering up front to uh, be available for prayer. And if you're a person who would like to begin this relationship with Jesus Christ, if you haven't already, I invite you to stay after service, and these people will pray with you, and you can invite Christ into your life. You don't need to do that with a person, another person. You can do that on your own, but we're available to you today to do that. It's been great to worship with you today. At all six campuses, let's stand for closing prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your patience, for your kindness, the fact that you are not far from any one of us. You're just a prayer away. God, there are folks standing here in the room today who need your touch. They need something powerful to happen in their life. They need a healing. They need, they need hope. There are some standing here who have a broken relationship with someone they care about. God, there are people standing here perhaps who have done something that they're ashamed of this past week. And they would just love to be forgiven and cleansed. And so, God, I just pray that all of us standing here would just open up our heart to you, and you know us. You know what we think about and worry about. You know what we chase after. But, God, I pray that you will meet us, and you will be all that we need you to be in this moment, and that we will trust you more so that we can worry less. Go before us now as we leave this place, and thank you for meeting with us today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.